John chapter 6. I, uh, I'm going to read just the first 15 verses, and, uh, and I'm going to ask you to join me in a quick word of prayer just to get centered at, at zero. So first 15 verses of John 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was much much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them. Uh, to those who were seated, so the fish also as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, go and gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were going to take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus, thank you, for, thank you for your word. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we can come here and that we can hear of you and hear from you. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit that you might touch hearts, that you would comfort where there needs to be comfort, that you would convict where there needs to be conviction, that you would change and that you would convert where change and conversion is needed. This is so far beyond me, Lord, that I always feel a, almost a palpable insignificance being up here, Lord. This is your word. And so I pray that I, I step aside, that my opinions, my thoughts go away, and that we hear only what it is that you would have for us to, to listen to and for us to glean from. In Jesus' name, amen. I love John chapter 6. I really do. And I was going through it this, this week trying to figure out exactly what part I wanted to preach from today, and I decided that I just want to cover the whole thing, the whole chapter six. I think that there's so much here in chapter six. There's intrigue, there's, 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 there's miracles, there's abundance, there's joy, there's comfort, there's gospel, there's Christology, and there's also conflict, and there's pushback, and there's grumbling, and there's confusion, and there's anger, and there's rejection of the person of Jesus. There's so much here, and I think that wherever you are in your Christian walk, you could, you could find some place in John 6 that is relatable to your moment right now. But where I, I want to focus our time today is on two main points that are here in this chapter. And one of them is a warning. I, I think that this, that this chapter points out very clearly, it, it's, it's alerting us to a mistake that we can make as believers or people who are pursuing Jesus. It's, it's, it's pernicious. It can be hard to... It can be hard to see. It can be hard to sense. It's a mistake that I actually made for years, basically because I didn't understand my Bible well enough. And I think that it's right. There's a tipping point in this chapter that you can't miss. Everything seems to be going well and is balanced out pretty well in the beginning of the chapter. And then there's a tilting point. And then as soon as it tilts, it's like it just teeter-totters over to one end. And it, it, it completely turns around. The narrative just switches. And so I want us... To look at that today, one of the things, the other thing is a great comfort that we also have in the verses in this chapter. A great comfort that, that, that we can take with us now and into eternity. So to get started with this, to do this blitz through chapter 6, I want to do what I usually do. And what I usually do is I go back three or four chapters to get a running start. And so I'm going to just pick up um, a theme that we see that starts in chapter 2. And you don't have to turn there. But in chapter 2, Jesus moves from being this obscure carpenter into the public eye. And he's in Jerusalem, he's at the temple, and chapter two ends with these words. Verse 23, now he was, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. 
And that, that verse plays tug of war on your heartstrings if you're a Christian, if, you're, if you have any interest in evangelism. This verse is sort of upsetting, and certainly it, it jumps out at you. Because we read that people believed in him when they saw his miracles, and we go, great, belief, salvation, success in the ministry. That's what we want. We want people to, to be into that. We want people to believe in Jesus. We want people to follow Jesus. And if it's his miracles that they see, then okay, so be it. That's great. But then the very next verse says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And we might think that that sounds weird and confusing. We have believing people that Jesus isn't entrusting himself to, and that's odd. And then it, it's just kind of left there. But there's people who are believing in Jesus because they see the signs that he is doing. And then the very first verses of chapter three, we see Nicodemus come to Jesus at night and says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do the works that you do unless God were with him. Again, the focus, the stated focus is we're paying attention to you because you have this miraculous power. In chapter four, Jesus leaves the area of Jerusalem and he heads north into the region of Galilee. And you know the story. He stops for two days in Samaria at a town called Sychar and he has an interaction with a woman and she gets saved. And after two days in Samaria, he cuts north again. And we pick up in verse 43 that after two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And that's another one of those sort of chin scratchers. Whenever you first read it, you go, it doesn't, it doesn't say that he went to Galilee despite the fact that he had no honor there. It says that he went for or because he had no honor there. And that's strange enough as it is, but then the very next verse complicates it even more and says when he had made it to Galilee, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So he goes into Galilee because he has no honor there, but then when he gets there, he's welcomed with open arms. And this is... This is weird, but it's, it's part of this theme that we see pick up. It says that they welcomed him because they had seen the miracles or the signs that he was doing in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also been at the feast. And this is worth paying attention to. So I even, he, he, in chapter 4, he ends up going to Cana, which is where he had turned water into wine in chapter 2. So from chapter 2, moving forward into chapter 4, we have this this following of Jesus, this interest in Jesus because he's performing these miracles. And it's very likely that the people who were in Cana at the wedding were still there. They still knew of his miraculous powers. He had gone down to Jerusalem, 80 miles away. He had made a name for himself as a miracle worker there. Nicodemus points it out. And then he goes back up to Galilee and there's people who were in Jerusalem, 80 miles away, and now they're in Galilee. So there's just this following of Jesus. There's this movement around Jesus. People are after him, they're following him. He has a reputation, they know what he's capable of. And there's this pursuit of him. And the pursuit takes us right, right through chapter five where he heals a man who was crippled for 38 years, laying for a long time at the pool of Bethesda. Very public event, it was at a feast in Jerusalem. Lots of people would have seen this happen. And Jesus actually gets in trouble with the religious leaders because he, he healed on the Sabbath. And that's where the animosity and the conflict with Jesus starts to rev up in the Gospel of John. And the, God, and the, the fifth chapter ends with this conflict that he's having with the religious leaders. But there's people that are still following hard after him. They're pursuing him because they see these signs that he's capable of. They see these miracles. And that brings us right into chapter 6. It's the first thing that we read. That he comes in... After this, they went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd followed because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And they're about to see another, another sign, the magnitude of which is something that we can't even comprehend. But these people are pursuing Jesus. They're following hard after him for the stated reason that they see the signs that he's doing. That's why they're chasing after him. His miraculous powers have intrigued them and they want more and they're chasing him around, following him. And this feeding of the, of the thousands, this miraculous feeding in chapter six is the only, it's, it's recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. It's the only miracle in which all four of the gospel accounts have besides the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. All four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have this recorded in their pages. And so we get a different vantage point or a different couple of details about the feeding uh, from, from those different authors. 
And Matthew, this takes place in Matthew chapter 14, and, and Matthew fills us in on what was happening in this, in this moment. Matthew 14, we're told in verses 10 through 12 that John the Baptist was killed in prison. He had his head cut off. It's presented on a platter to Herodias. The disciples of John come and take away his body and bury him, verse 12, and then they come and they tell Jesus, verse 13 says that as soon as Jesus hears this, he gets into a boat and he goes away to the other side, to what is described in Matthew as a desolate place. He goes to a desolate place to be alone with his disciples for mourning. Remember, him and John the Baptist were cousins. And some of Jesus' earliest and closest disciples were once disciples of John the Baptist. So this is a time of mourning. This is a brother. This is a family member who has been killed in prison. A tragic end for a guy who was probably 31 or 32 years old. Killed in prison. And these guys go to mourn that. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that the disciples of Jesus had just come back from missionary, a missionary journey and, and that they were tired. And Jesus actually, it actually says that they, they came to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus says, let's go to a faraway place. Let's go to the other side so that we can rest. And I'm pointing this out because I want us to see the compassion of Jesus from the get-go. He goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, an area today known as the Golan Heights. The word that's used mountain in this text today is the word ta'aras. It doesn't mean mountain like we have on the west coast. It's, the ro it's rolling hills. It means high land or high ground. And you can look at pictures of it today. It's just, it's rolling hills and there's nothing there. It's a desolate place. There's no towns. There's no people there. They go there to be alone and the people follow them. And Matthew records that whenever Jesus sees the multitude on the shoreline wanting to just rest, wanting to just mourn, going there for the purpose of getting some R&R, &R, and he's, he's greeted by thousands of people and he doesn't rebuke them for bugging them. He doesn't chastise them. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't get angry with them at all. He doesn't, he's not irritated that he doesn't get that break that he wanted. He's not irritated that he doesn't get time to mourn the loss of his cousin, John the Baptist. It says that he had compassion on the people. And Luke's gospel tells us that this actually went on for hours. Jesus didn't just arrive on the shore and feed them. He didn't just arrive and go, all right, what are we going to do with these people? I know, we'll stuff their faces, we'll shut them up, and then we can get out of here. Luke tells us that he spent the day, he was teaching them the things of the kingdom of God, and that he was healing them. And then the way that Luke says it is, as the day began to wear away, people get hungry, and the disciples are actually like, Lord, send them away. Send them away back to town where they can get provisions and shelter. And, and Jesus says, actually, tell them to sit down. His compassion for us is unbelievable. He went there to chill, and instead he spent the entire day healing and teaching and then eventually leads to this feeding. His compassion for us is so great for these people that are following him because they liked these signs. They followed him for the signs he was doing on the sick. And we might ask, we might ask what signs? And follow me, follow me as I'm, I'm gonna nerd out for a little bit, but I have a point, I'm getting somewhere, so just track with me as we go. What signs? They saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Okay, what signs? And the way that I wanna answer that for our purpose today is to point out this. Chapter six starts off with these words, after this. Okay, so let's start there. After this, after what? Well, after the events of chapter five the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, the conflict that he had with the religious leaders. After this, he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, verse four, and the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand. So we have a, a period of time after chapter five and there's a Passover that is just about to take place. Now if we turn back a page, chapter five starts off with the exact same words, after this. There was a Feast of the Jews and Jesus went to Jerusalem. So the time period here is what I want to focus on for just a second. The, the gap between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we don't know. Jesus goes into Samaria. He's there for a couple of days. He goes into Galilee. He lands in Capernaum. He heals of an official's son. Excuse me, he goes into Cana. He heals an official's son who's in Capernaum. And then after this, some period of time, we don't know, but there is a feast that's happening. But we're not told which feast. So we're, we're kind of at a mystery here is where we are on the, 
the timeline of Jesus' ministry. But then in chapter 6, we have a Passover feast. Now, I, don't, I could geek out on all the details that people think and they hypothesize about what's happening here, or what, what feast it was or wasn't. But suffice it to say that depending on what feast there was in chapter 5, we have, we have covered six months to a year between the end of chapter 5 and the intro into chapter 6, depending on the feast. I'm not going to get into that, but if it was this feast, it was this long. If it was that feast, it was this amount of time. They've made it to Passover, so six months to a year has passed since chapter 5, and that's a significant amount of time, especially when you consider the very last verse in the Gospel of John, which says this, chapter 21, verse 25. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now let's make a little bit of room for some hyperbole there. I, I don't think that John the Apostle meant that every depth of all the oceans and the, 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 the spans of every continent would actually be covered in books. But his point remains. Jesus' miracles were so ubiquitous, so common, that to keep track of them would be impossible. He did a lot of miracles. He did a lot of amazing things that we don't know about. He did a lot of amazing things that are not recorded in scripture. And so for the last six months to a year, these people have been seeing signs that he's been doing that we won't know about till we get to heaven. Who knows the things that they've seen? But they're intrigued and they're following him. They're going hard after him, even into a desolate place, and they forget to bring their lunch. And I'm almost inspired by this. I'm almost inspired by these people's tenacity to go hard after Jesus, even into the desolate places, the faraway places, the places that are inconvenient, the places where we don't have any guarantees. We're going there, there's no town, there's no food, there's no, there's no nothing, but we're gonna go follow him anyhow. I think that that's incredible. I'm almost, I almost feel bad because I'm like, I don't do that. I don't follow Jesus like that. I don't follow Jesus the way that these people do. But here they are, and they're about to see a, a miracle, the magnitude of which we can't, we, again, we can't, we can't understand. There's actually people who have tried to figure out mathematically about, they, they get into energy and they try to figure out that much bread for that many people, what kind of energy would that have needed to be, have been generated to, to create that much bread? And it's, it's, you should look it up, it's crazy. It, it's like, it was math and I gave up, I fell asleep. There was no way I was even gonna get into that. I was like, this would be really cool to share with Door of Hope, and I was like, not that cool, though. You get into like pi and weird like numbers and letters come together and that should never happen except on a vending machine as far as I'm concerned. But these people are about to witness an incredible miracle. A, a miracle that the impossibility of is actually shown to us. They've been following Jesus for all this time. They've seen amazing miracles. Jesus' followers have seen amazing miracles. But these 20,000 people end up on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And instead of sending them away, Jesus says, tell the people to sit and the word that he uses is anapipto. It means literally relax. It means lay down, recline, get comfortable. Tell the people to make themselves comfortable. We're going to be here for a while. And he says, testing Philip, how are we going to feed these people? And Philip's like, the last six months to a year, well, even longer for Philip because he's been there since the beginning. I've been watching the Lord do this. There was the wedding in Cana. That was cool. There was the guy that he gave new legs to that was at the pool of Bethesda. That was cool. But this, not not possible. We can't do this. Even if we had 200 denarii worth of bread, we wouldn't be able to feed these people even a little bit. And 200 denarii would have been eight months' pay for the typical laborer in that time. Almost a year's paycheck would not be enough money to feed these people. Jesus, we are in over our heads. This water is too deep. Chime in, Andrew. Well, I got a sack lunch. That's what I could find. So what's that going to do for so many? These guys don't get it. I mean, Jesus said this to test them. And they don't get it. But you know how the story goes. Jesus takes this, this humble lunch of five loaves and two fish. And we're not even really told how, but he gives thanks. And then he distributes it to these 20,000 people. And I could just imagine, you imagine being in the crowd and seeing that somebody's walking around distributing food. And you're just like so anxious that some of it's going to get to you. You're just hoping that you get, a, you get a hold of some fish or you get a hold of a piece of bread, just something to, to satiate you for the next few hours. That's the scarcity mindset. I, mean, that's, I would have been looking at that bread basket coming like, I just hope that I get a piece of it. But these people ate until they were completely satisfied. The Greek word there means that they were stuffed, they were stuffed full. 
They weren't sitting around going, I'm not going to have seconds, you should have seconds, why don't you take some home for your kids, I'm okay, I can do without. Everybody had as much as they wanted and there were still 12 baskets left over. This this bounty, to to contrast the scarcity mindset of the disciples, it can't be done, even if we had almost a year's worth of money, we couldn't do it, and yet they eat themselves sick, stuffed to the gills, if you will, and there's still 12 baskets left over. This is an incredible miracle, incredible miracle, 20,000 people fed, that's a stadium concert, you know, 20,000 people, and this is the miracle that, this is the miracle that does it for them. All of the miracles that they may have seen, whatever healings they saw, whatever the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick, whatever those are specifically that we don't even know about, this is the one where they're like, this guy is the prophet that was to come. Verse 14, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And they're exactly right. Jesus is that prophet, the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, the one that would come that would be greater than Moses but, and would have the word of God's, God's word in his mouth. This is the prophet that is to come and Jesus is that prophet. We're told in Acts 3, the words of Peter during his great sermon that Jesus was in fact this prophet. Look at how stoked, let's just pause for a minute and see and observe and really like meditate on how stoked these people are on our Lord. They've been watching his miracles. They chase him across the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee to get to him in a desolate place. He feeds them miraculously and they're so pumped about him that verse 15, They want to take him by force to be their king. And that sounds good. Let's not kid ourselves. That sounds right. Jesus is king. He's your king. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, even if you don't know it yet. He is the king of the universe, whether you believe it or not. And these people want to make him their king, and that seems awesome. And I want to leave that there. That seems awesome. Yes, we want him to be our king. And the story moves on. He leaves because he's not interested in being a political messiah like they want to make him. He's not interested in being an earthly king. These people want to force him to be king, but he's not interested in that agenda. He's come for so much more than that, and so he leaves. And he, we're told in Mark that he tells the disciples, get into the boat, go back across the water to Capernaum. And they do, and Jesus stays in the mountains. And when you put the, gospel, uh, the gospels together, the story is they go across the water, it gets to be dark, there's a storm, they're alone out there, they're freaked out, Jesus is nowhere to be seen, and then Jesus comes walking across the water, that spooks them, rightfully so. And then Peter, they realize that it's the Lord, and Peter says, if you're the Lord, tell me to come out. Peter comes out, he sinks, Jesus grabs him, they get into the boat, He calms the storm. Most of that's not here in John's gospel, but that's the story as it is told otherwise. But the the detail that we get here in, in, in John is verse 21, that they were glad to take him in the boat, and when they did, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It's sort of the, if you'll remember uh, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, after he baptizes him, it says that he was caught up and was sent to another place. It's like, there's this time warp miracle that happens. He gets into the boat and then somehow immediately they're where they, meant they were heading. And this confuses the people that are left on shore. The next day they wake up, Jesus isn't there, the disciples aren't there, the boats aren't there. They go to Capernaum, they go back the way that they had come. They know that Jesus is in Capernaum. It was his headquarters during his Galilean ministry. They get there and rightfully befuddled a little bit, they say, when did you get here, Rabbi? And he doesn't answer their question. He pokes, he pokes them. And we begin to see the cracks that have been hidden up until this point, the weak spots that we were previously blind to. But we've been, it's been leading up to these cracks. We, we've, been, we've been guided slowly but surely to realize that these cracks are in place and we begin to see that the cracks are fatal. Like standing on a frozen pond, as soon as it cracks, it's like one more step and you'll fall right through. And Jesus reveals the cracks in these, in these people's belief and what they think. And he doesn't answer their question, but he pushes back on them. He says, truly I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs. You're seeking me because, because you had your fill of the loaves. You didn't see the signs. D.A. Carson says it like this. They saw the signs, but they didn't see what the signs signified. That's the best way that I've seen it said. 
They saw the signs, but they didn't see what the signs signified. They're so preoccupied with their physical well-being, their physical security, their physical health, being taken care of here and now with food and with sustenance and knowing where their next meal is going to come from. It's something that we can relate to, but they're so focused on that. They're so focused on the bread. They're looking down at the bread. They had it in their hands. They ate it. They tasted it. They swallowed it. They, di- they digested it, and they're so stuck on it that they're not able to look up. They see, the, they see the product of the miracle, and they won't look up to the one that produced it. And Jesus is trying to get them to look beyond the here, beyond the now, beyond the immediate, beyond immediate gratification, beyond the physical, and into, excuse me, and into the eternal. He wants them to look up from the bread to the one that provided the bread. Jesus does care about our physical condition. This miracle proves it. He had compassion on the people. They needed to be fed. He could have sent them back to town, but he told them to sit down, chill, and he fed them. He cares for our physical bodies. He cares for our physical well-being. He knows how many hairs are on our head. But the primary reason why he came is not to give bread, but to be bread. And he wants these people to look up from the miracle to the one who can perform the miracle. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And they hear the word work, and they're like, work. That's what we do. We can do that. What what do we got to do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. Believe. Believe in him who he has sent. This is the work. This is the truth of the gospel. Stop working and believe. You cannot earn it. You cannot cannot travel there. You cannot get there. There's not some, some religion, some practice that you have to adopt. The work has been done. And we just need to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Do not work, but believe. That's the work. Stop working and believe. And the cracks get bigger and more revealed. And we begin to see why in chapter 2 he was performing miracles and they believed in him, but he did not entrust himself to them. We begin to see why in chapter 4 he was not honored in Galilee and yet welcomed with open arms. We begin to see why. Because in a moment they turn their back on him. He doesn't give them what they want immediately and they turn their back on him. They say to him, what sign do you do that we may believe you? And that's ridiculous. For the last six months to a year, if everything that, had been, that everything that Jesus had done had been written down, the world would not contain the books. For six months to a year, these people have been seeing this consistently. It's the stated reason why they were chasing him in, chapter, in verse 2, and they just experienced that miraculous feeding, and yet they have the nerve to say, all right, well, you need to satisfy our intellectual curiosity. Prove yourself to us. If you're such a hot shot, And I think that it's interesting, and I think that it's relatable, that the sign that they bring up as an example, they pull from the Old Testament. They say, what sign are you going to do? I have an idea. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, verse 31. That's that's out of Exodus chapter 16, where the manna came down from heaven again and again and again and again and again. You say you're better than Moses. You say that you're the one that we should believe in. Then why don't you feed us the way that Moses did? And notice they pull from the Old Testament. Notice that they don't say, all right, um, tell you what, we need a sign. We don't like Rome. Why don't you plague them with, uh, you know what, make their drinking water blood. That would be cool. Or plague them with locusts like they did in the Old Testament. That would be cool. Or have their firstborn killed in the morning. How about that, Jesus? That would be a sign. Or I'll tell you what, we're here on the Sea of Galilee. Why don't you just part that in half? That'd be convenient. They specifically go to the bread. They go back to the bread. And this is where I want to I want to stop beating them up. I want to relate to them. This is us. Scholars and theologians and historians estimate that the people of this time and place in Palestine would have spent 85% of their annual income on food. It was a poor agrarian society. Food was not as easily readable to them as it as it is to us. 85% of their income went to food and all of a sudden they have a guy who can feed them instantly with delicious food. Could you do that every day? Because then, then maybe you would be worth our while. Maybe that would prove to us that you're worth believing in. But this is what we can do. This is the temptation. Jesus, make my life easier. 
Like the woman at the well in chapter four, he said, I will give to you water that will spring up into you a well that will, give, that will lead to eternal life. And she said, all right, cool. Give me that water so that I'm not thirsty anymore and that I don't have to anymore come to this well every day. I don't, I don't want to be too bold. This is us. This is me. I don't know how many times I have griped about the Lord, at the Lord because my life didn't go the way that I thought. And my conclusion was he's not paying attention. I didn't know scripture well enough to know that Christians can go through hard times. Christians can be hungry. Christians can get cancer. Christians can lose loved ones. I didn't understand the Bible well enough to know that that could happen. And so whenever things like that happened, it it almost destroyed my faith because I was like, God's not paying attention because my life is not easy or my life isn't the way that I want it to be. This is very human. Lord, you know, 85% annual increase would be awesome. It would be. It's, It's financially pragmatic. Let's not have to buy food anymore. Sounds good to me. They don't get it. They're so focused on the here and the now, and Jesus begins to just turn up the heat, and the cracks become more and more evident, more and more pronounced. He says in verse 35, I am the bread that comes, I am the bread of life that comes, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. I am the bread of life. And then they really turn their back on him. That's it. He didn't give us what, he, what we wanted, and now he's talking crazy. Verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus? Right? The son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know, how is he now going to say, I have come down from heaven? Do you see how quickly they've turned? Verse 15, they were going to take him by force to make him their king, and now they're going, don't even, don't stop. We know who you are. We know where you come from. We know who your parents are. Stop it with this whole Messiah come down from heaven stuff, okay? Stop. Don't get hoity-toity with me. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me about my life. My Aunt Lydia has a coffee table that you made. I know who you are, carpenter. Do you see how they're disrespecting him? They're disregarding everything that's happened, and they're saying, but we know who you are, so stop acting like you're cool. Look at how fast that happened. That's what's amazing to me is how quickly that, that turned. Those cracks were made evident, and then it's like, and then it just, it, the ice broke through. And now they're disrespecting him. They're cutting him down. They're disregarding him. We know where you're from. We know who you are. So stop trying to act like such a hot shot because he didn't, because he didn't give him the bread. And so, and, and so this continues. Jesus continues pushing. He continues pushing. He started by making physical bread, and then he says that I am the bread. Stop looking at the physical bread. I am the real bread. Verse 50 says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So we've gone from physical bread to Jesus being the spiritual bread that came down from heaven to now that bread needing to be eaten. And here is the gospel. These these everyday normal people like us are bent out of shape because they think that Jesus is unable or unwilling to give them physical bread for the duration of their life. But what he's here for, and he does care about physical bread, he does care for our physical bodies, but what he's here for is so much more beyond what they could have ever imagined. He's here to give up Not just his time, not just a weekend when he was going to get away with the boys. He's here to give up his very life. The bread that I give is my flesh for the life of the world, not just Israel, not just you. He came here to die. He came here to die for their sins. The very people that showed up conveniently on the shore ready for miracles and to get fed are now trying to throw him away, disregard him. And he's saying, but I, pay attention, take your eyes off the bread. Take your eyes off physical sustenance. I'm here to give you an eternal security, and I'm going to do it by giving of my own body. I'm going to sacrifice that much for you. This is the bread that you need. And they grumble. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus doesn't back down. 
He keeps up. He doesn't say, you know what, you're right. Eating of the flesh thing was maybe a little bit too much. I stand corrected. How about we try this? He, he turns it up. He turns up the heat. Verse 53 says, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, now listen to this, verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I'm going to read that again. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's already said that, but he said it differently. Cast an eyeball on verse 40. This is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the exact same language. 54 is a metaphor of 40. To eat his flesh and to drink his blood is not literal, but it's to believe, it's to come, it's to trust, it's to, it's to put your faith in him. In, we know that he's not speaking about literally eating his body and literally drinking his blood. These people are repulsed by that. Exodus 17 makes it very clear that you should not be eating meat that has blood in it, let alone actually drink blood all over Exodus 17. So these guys are, are offended by this, but that's not what Jesus means. But what he does mean is equally offensive. Because what he's saying is identify with my broken body. Identify with my shed blood. Identify with my crucifixion. All of the millions of people that may have experienced death on a Roman cross identify with what is special about mine. Because mine is in your place because you're a sinner. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. So admit that you're a sinner, repent, and come to me as your savior. And that is repulsive. That is offensive. If I said that in any bar in North Portland, in Portland anywhere, I would be, I just lived in the North. If I said that in any bar in Portland anywhere, I would be thrown out, probably for hate speech. There is only one way to heaven. We are not just people that need help. We are sinners who need to be saved. We are helpless. We need Jesus' life. We need his righteousness. His death was in our place. He came to offer his body as a sacrifice so that we wouldn't have to be sacrificed. He was punished so that we wouldn't have to be punished, so that justice would be satisfied, and so that in, in place of our punishment, we actually receive grace. We receive his, his perfect righteousness as a gift when we put our faith in him. Identify with the cross. Identify with the broken body of Jesus. Identify with the blood that was shed. Understand why. For God so loved the world that he came, he came and he died. So that whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life, everlasting security, beyond the bread, beyond the manna, beyond the here, beyond the now, for all of eternity we would have security. And that's a repulsive message to our culture and this was hard for them to understand. It was repulsive to them. And then the ice breaks completely. Verse 60, after hearing this, they say, this is a hard saying and who can listen to it? The, the, the literal translation is who can accept it? Who can accept this? You came down from heaven. There's only life in your body. We need, you're the bread that came down from heaven. There's no other way. We need to eat your flesh and drink your blood. I can't, I, I'm done. I just came here for lunch. And so they bail. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. This is a warning, friends. This is a warning because so quickly, within the, within the confines of one chapter, we have, a, we have a large group of people who want to take Jesus by force to make him their king only to just the turn of a page in my Bible, maybe in your Bible, you don't even have to turn the page and they're rejecting him. They're walking away from him. And verse 66 in the original language is, is definite. They turned away and they did not come back. They left him for good. I wanted you to make my life easier. I wanted to be free from my cancer. I want my dad's cancer to go away. It's tempting to feel like God's not paying attention because my dad's cancer is not going away. That's devastating. 
We want our lives to go better. And, and we have, I want to have empathy for this. This is a real thing because some of the things that happen in our lives are awful. They're awful. When I was in high school, one of my best friends, his name was Peter, and he had a sister who was a couple years older than him, and she went to college to be uh, a junior high teacher, I think, and she wanted this junior high teaching job in Texas. She was from here. And after college, she applied for the job in Texas, and she got it. And her and her parents celebrated, and it was really awesome, and they had a party, and there was hugging and kissing because you're going to Texas, and we're going to miss you, but we'll see you at Christmas. And on the way to Texas to get her dream job, she ran head-on with a semi-truck and was killed instantly, 22 years old. And my, my friend, Peter, you know, up until that point, he was in church, he was reading his Bible, he seemed to be following Jesus, and then tragedy happened, and he left. It was too much for him. This cannot happen when, when you're a Christian, right? This cannot happen when you're a Christian, right? You can't get your head cut off in prison when you're a Christian, right? The Lord wouldn't let that happen. But here's the thing, friends, is that it does. We're not promised any of that here. And I bring this burden with me. I mean, I spent years. I, 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 was, I was tempted this week, you know, whenever I was telling my friend Piper that I... I I found out on Tuesday that I was going to preach today, and then I preached in the park, and I wasn't able to get to this until Thursday, and I was thinking, what would be an easy thing to share? I'll share my testimony. That'll be an easy thing to share, and I, I decided against it. Maybe one day I'll share with you guys, but I did this for years. I was so mad at God because life didn't go the way that I thought that it should. Give me a reason. What work are you going to do that I should believe in you? That was my attitude because things weren't up to my standard, whatever that standard was. And I was looking at the here and the now, and I was negating eternity. I wasn't thinking about the eternal. And I don't want to be cavalier or rude. The suffering that we have here is real, and the Lord is paying attention. He is watching. Jesus knew that John the Baptist was in prison, and we can't know all the reasons why things happen the way that they do. But what we do know is that it's not because he's not paying attention. It's not because he doesn't care. It's not because he's aloof or indifferent. This miracle proves that he cares for our physical bodies, but it is not his primary concern. His primary concern, as crazy and capricious and un unbelievably hard this life can be, he is in it for our eternal security. He's in it for our eternity. And so this is a warning to us. How many people that I've known personally that sat in church, I used to be in the worship band with people that none of them. <laughs> we used to do drugs before we got into the worship band. I mean, it was so weird. We were so aloof, we were so lost. And I'm the only one who's a Christian, let alone a pastor. There's one other guy that I know. There's one other guy that I know. But my heart goes out. And I'm not here saying that those people are saved or not. I'm not here to say that. But I'm concerned because they threw their Bible away. They pursued the bread of the here and the now, whatever feels good. They pursued that joy that they think that they're going to get. And they left Jesus behind, and it's concerning to me. And then you read these words in the book of John, and you go, well, that, that happens. And at any moment, of course, the Lord would, would bring them back. Prodigal as they may be, the Lord is waiting for them to come back. Any one of those people would, be, would come back, and his grace would be new every morning. But the people that I know don't want him anymore. And that scares me. And I think that that's a warning that we need to pay attention to. Jesus said that the love of many will grow cold. Paul says that test yourselves. He says in, he says in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, check yourself. See if you're in the faith. Test yourself. And I think that that's fair because this happens. This happens today. There's a glimmer of hope at the very end of this chapter. Jesus turns to his disciples and the language indicates that he's very sad and he's turning to them and, and he's saying, you, you don't want to go too, do you? Not you. My guys, you're going to stay, right? And Peter, bless his heart, as much grief as we give Peter, Peter says, where else are we going to go? Sure, the eating of the flesh and the drinking of the blood was kind of weird, but we're, but we're with you. We're with you. We don't have it all figured out yet. We have questions. There are some uncertainties, but we are with you. So we're sticking to it. And here is the comfort, friends. Here is the comfort. Those men, those men that stuck with them, there's, there's a beautiful chunk of scripture. I sort of, I sort of rolled through it a few minutes ago, but verses 16 to 21 those, those boys that are in the boat. Listen to what this says, verse 17. 
They got into the boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Stop. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound relatable? That's an incredible transition because verses 1 through 15, he's there. He's speaking with them. He's instructing them. He's healing them. He's feeding them miraculously. People can see him. They can, they can hear the words of his voice. And then in the turn of one verse, they're on a boat alone in a storm in the dark, and he is nowhere to be found. And imagine, if you would, for just a minute, if you're in that boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, there's no way that you're thinking Jesus is going to show up now. We left him on the shore. So we're, <laughs> this is it, boys. We're on our own. It's dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. But Mark tells us that from his place in the hills, from his place in the Golan Heights, Jesus could look down at the sea, and he could, he could see them. He had his eye on them, and he pursued them where they least expected it. He showed up at such a radical moment that he actually scared them because he was walking on the water. They didn't see that coming. And he gets into the boat with them. Now this, this is one of those points where I, I don't think that I have the language to convey in this moment how awesome this is. He's in the boat with them. It's storming. Peter flops around. But he's in the boat with them. He's with them. He's with you. He cares for your physical well-being. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He's watching you. You're in the boat and it's dark and you feel like you're alone, but he is in the hills and he is watching you. And even more than that, he's in the boat with you. He comes to reside inside of us. We become the temple of God. His spirit makes us born again and we become new. And his spirit is living in us. He is in our boat. And so... That's something that I think takes time. I think that that's something that we need to meditate on daily. That's not something that I can hit like powerhouse right now. So go home, read Psalm 103. Make, a, make some tea, watch the sunset, read Psalm 103. Read Psalm 23. The book of Colossians says, since the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the, for, the Lord, fully pleasing to him. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's a prayer. That's a prayer that we need to memorize. He has transferred us from the kingdom into the kingdom of his beloved son, out of the domain of darkness. We're here and we are going to experience whatever storms it might be. Every one of these disciples had it hard. Jesus had it hard. I don't want to mull over that. But what I want and what I've learned in the last few years is that there is a joy. You know, Psalm chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. I'm just going off the cuff now, so we're going to see what happens. In Psalm, in Psalm chapter 4, 7 and 8, it says this. You have given me more joy than they have when their grain and wine abound. And so in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for only you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The security that we have whenever we've got a full fridge, a full pantry, gas is full in the car, credit cards looking good, debit cards looking even better, the house is cool, it doesn't leak, we're healthy, that's a security, that is. I'm not even being facetious, I'm being for serious. That is a real security that we feel. And what that verse is saying and what Jesus is saying, what Psalms 4 is saying and what John 6 is saying is that what Jesus is saying is that there's a joy that's better than that. There's a joy that outlasts that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff will be added unto you. And when the day comes that you get old and feeble and you're in hospice and you're, you weigh 75 pounds and you're wearing a diaper and you can hardly breathe, even then this joy is ours. The security is ours. These guys wanted security. They wanted an 85% annual increase, and we get it. But what they didn't understand is that Jesus was giving them an eternity of security. No more crying, no more weeping, no more pain. Revelation 21. An inheritance that is undefiled and unfading. Praise God. Meditate on that. Jesus is in the boat with you. Jesus is in the midst of whatever it is that you are suffering. And I've been, adhere, I've been here at Door of Hope long enough to see some friends that have gone through some suffering and they stuck around. 
and they're still here. And they went through the pain with the Lord. And they're so glad that they did. You know, my dad's cancer is getting worse. And he's constantly in pain, and I don't even like to hear about it. I don't even, when my mom gives us updates, and I'm like, I, I mean, I have to listen to it, but I don't even want to. But my dad here, solid. Because, because he knows this. Jesus is with him in the boat. And this, I want to close with this. I'm already over time, but it's the 11 o'clock, so so what? <laughs> Jesus is in your boat with you. He cares for you. He's listening to you. You have this body of people. You have pastors. You have friends to rejoice with you when you rejoice, to weep with you when you weep. We're here. And Jesus is in the boat, and he's guiding it. He's with you no matter what the storm. And it says, it, it ends, verse 21, this little section here. When they welcomed him into the boat, immediately the boat was on the land to where they were going. You know, the Bible says that the human life is like a flower. It blooms today. It's dead tomorrow. It's like a mist. It appears, and then it's gone. But the Bible also says that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. And friends, Paul says that we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. This life, this mortal coil, as hard and as trying as it is, and I know that it is, what is that? When, it, when it's over, either Jesus is going to come back or every one of us is going is to die. We're going to experience that our life will feel like that. We are to the land where we were going. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. So friends, we have, we have good reason to endure. May you be strengthened. May you be strengthened for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us over to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the blood and the flesh, the cross. Amen? Amen. Jesus is good. There is um, communion elements here at the front for those of you who want to do communion. And then to my left in the back behind those double doors to the left, there's a room. If you need prayer, there are people there that are willing to pray for you. Let me close out in a word of prayer right now. We'll have the band come back up. I love you guys. It's so good to be here with you today. Jesus, thank you again for your love. Thank you for your peace. Thank you that you're in the boat with us. Thank you that you are nearer to us than we even are to our own thoughts. That you know the hair count on our head. That you care for our physical bodies. But that you are even pointing us to a greater joy, a greater fulfillment, an eternal security that is far beyond the reaches of this world. I pray, Lord, for those who are, who are here and they are hurting in one way or another, that this gives them hope, that, that your word preached by the power of your spirit would, would comfort hearts, that you would remind them that you have removed from them their sin as far as the east is from the west. They have an inheritance waiting for them that is undefiled and unfading and that they are filled with so much joy for the future that even in this moment of trial that their joy would be contagious to the world around them and that they could evangelize and be a hope to those who do not know you. Thank you for this time and for this place and all of the hands and feet that make it possible to do this every Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.